is Robert Costa reporting from Birmingham, Alabama. We're just a few days ahead of the Senate election, a race that the whole country is paying attention to. So are people here at Fife's restaurant. Alabama's struggling, but I think too many have know what they want, and it's not the right thing for our country. I just think that they uh, say we're backwoods. There was some uh, ad come out today saying that we were uh, white supremacist haters and things like that. And I don't hate anyone. I love them all, so. This is something that's really going to define Alabama for the future, not just for the people, but for like all the after effects that are going to have on what the people view as what's politically correct and what's not, to be honest. voices of Alabamians talking to Washington Post political reporter Robert Costa in the days leading up to last night's special election in Alabama. Voters in the deep red state were to decide between a Democrat, Doug Jones. More important. I'm going to tell you folks, it is time, and I think we're going to see it tomorrow, that the majority of the people of Alabama say that it is time that we put our decency, our state, before a political party. And a Republican, Roy Moore, who in recent weeks has faced allegations of sexual misconduct with minors. I want to see virtue and morality returned to our country. And God is the only source of the, our law, liberty, and government. And decide they did. Last night, Democrat Doug Jones won the competitive and at times bitter election and is now set to become Alabama's next senator. That outcome has some pretty big consequences for the rest of the country, for the legislative agenda in Congress, for the state of divisive politics and party loyalty in our country, and even for the president of the United States. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. And this is our 50th episode, if you can believe it, and just about my last for now as your host. So we decided to bring you something just a little different. Robert Costa headed to Alabama in the days leading up to last night's special election to hear directly from the voters who live there. Robert, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Before we hear from voters, let's lay out what these special election results actually mean for our country. So Doug Jones, he had a ton of money poured into this campaign from Democrats across the country. He had a sizable grassroots effort. Does his win say something about how we campaign in this country in future elections? It says less about the logistics of campaigns and campaign money and more about the character of states and the character of the parties at this moment in America. You have the Republican Party with a president who faces accusations himself on sexual misconduct, embracing a candidate in Roy Moore, who faced his own allegations down in Alabama. And voters had to make a choice in a traditionally Republican state. Would they stay with the Trump candidate? Would they stay with the Republican Party? And they were making a choice as much about partisan politics as they were about their own state's identity and their own state's future and how, they, how they, they themselves wanted to see Alabama and how they wanted Alabama to be seen by the country. So you don't necessarily attribute Jones's win to that grassroots effort or that influx of money? It, it, partially, it was important uh, for Jones to have a strong turnout of Democrats in a state where Democrats are usually pretty 
depressed in, in their outlook on state politics. They don't control many offices in the state. Many of them often stay home. But he brought in, uh, in particular, African-American Democratic leaders like Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and uh, former Massachusetts Governor Devil Patrick to try to rev up the black turnout in places like Birmingham, where I was for a week, and Montgomery and Selma to try to get voters who traditionally stay home in these off-year elections to come out and to really try to claim a seat in the Deep South. And Doug Jones, he, he had a difficult road to walk because he supports abortion rights. And in the Deep South, that often makes it very hard to win statewide in a state like Alabama. But he said to the voters there, and I saw it up close when he made his pitch, I may not be with you on every issue, like on abortion, but if you care about the state's business climate, if you care about the state's reputation, come with me. And that was a pitch that worked. Now that Jones has won, what do you expect to see change in the Senate, if anything? This is a seismic political event. Doug Jones, an almost unknown Democrat, has won a Senate seat in the Deep South. And he supports abortion rights. He won in Alabama. This is perhaps the major political event of President Trump's first year. Not legislatively, but major political event. We, th- we saw glimmers of a-, a sea change in Virginia when the Virginia Democrats did very well in the suburbs. But to do this well in Alabama, it makes everybody sit up and wonder what is going to happen in 2018. Could the Democrats take the House? Could they take the Senate? In 2020, if President Trump can't be counted upon to carry upon even a scarred candidate like Roy Moore across the finish line, how is he going to really be counted upon to win in the Deep South in 2020? This is something that just changes every calculation for both parties. And what it changes is it invigorates the Democrats. And some of them may read too much into this. This doesn't mean they're going to start winning in Mississippi and Georgia and Florida. It doesn't mean that. But it means that questions of character and conduct are strong enough and powerful enough to convince voters, even in Alabama, to vote for Doug Jones. And if you take that big picture and you think and you step back and you say, if questions of character and conduct matter in Alabama, they could matter across the country for voters in 2018. And that's what the Democrats are banking on. They know they have to turn on the economic issues to start appealing more to the working class on trade and jobs in the way that Trump did in places like Michigan and uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But they also know that they got to win over the suburban voters, some of them who switched to Trump in places like the suburbs of Philly, where I grew up. And this moral question uh, worked in Alabama, and you're going to see them apply it across the country in various races. So what outstanding legislation will Jones have the opportunity to vote on at this point? The Republicans are going to move very quickly on taxes now that Jones is coming in because they don't want to have a 51-49 Senate. They want to have a 52 Republican, 48 uh, Democrat Senate like they have now to move forward on taxes. So taxes will probably happen before Jones gets there, before he gets sworn in. Jones is going to have an opportunity to shape the agenda next year, whether that's the infrastructure package the White House is talking about, welfare policies the White House is talking about, different kinds of foreign policy decisions that sometimes go through the Senate, judicial nominations. He he will be a voice. Uh, But a lot of the major uh, legislation has already, for the Trump presidency, has happened during the first year. What Jones does is he stops something from happening. Think about this. The Senate is now 51-49. That is such a narrow majority for Republicans. In a narrow environment like that, you're going to have 
hesitation among Republicans to start pushing a lot of major legislation through because they know they just don't have the votes. 51 senators on the Republican side doesn't mean much because you could lose Senator Rand Paul on things. You could lose Senator Susan Collins, a moderate, on a lot. Senator Cruz, Senator Mike Lee, and these conservative hardliners who don't love a lot of the big legislation. So it puts McConnell in a position of not really having the votes uh, to move forward on big items. Robert, let's hear how some voters in Alabama felt heading into this election and look at some of the forces that drove the outcome in this case. First, what set these two candidates, Democrat Doug Jones and Republican Roy Moore, apart in the eyes of Alabama voters? What set these two candidates apart was a partisan affiliation, Republican versus Democrat, but it was really something that was deeper. In Roy Moore, his base saw him as an evangelical champion, someone who would bring their values to Washington, who was totally anti-establishment. And Doug Jones, the Democrat, his core voters saw him as a version of modern Alabama, uh, a lawyer who has prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan and was a former U.S. attorney, but has a mild manner, is very business focused. And it was a, a difference in candidates about temperament, style, and what they really represent. They were avatars uh, for different elements of Alabama's own culture. And as I spoke to voters, I heard about how these candidates, these campaigns reflected aspects of themselves. Here's Leslie Golden, for example, a Democrat and a paralegal from Smoke Rise, Alabama. And she commented on the disparity between the candidates. Um, We've got one who is incredibly qualified, who has really nothing but good things on his resume, who took on cases that he did not have to take on, but saw there was a great injustice that needed to be looked at. And then we've got someone on the other side who is not really bound to the civil law he swore to uphold, who is appealing to the worst in people, If you looked at his resume, it would be questionable at best. And yet the uh, contest is by no means certain. And this is crazy. I think that if this were any other kind of a setting, there'd be no question about who should be winning. Here's Sarah Hillard, 19 years old, tells me she leans libertarian, a little bit Democrat, met her at the Books a Million in Fultondale, outside of Birmingham, and she highlighted the differences between the candidates as well. I think my biggest thing is, like, I see all the, you know, pro-lifers against uh, Jones, who are like, oh, it's for the children, but the other guy is an accused child molester, so where's the for the children after that? And I think it's really, really not great for Alabama's reputation because, you know, everybody's, like, so against voting Democrat that they'd rather vote someone who's accused of, who's reportedly been banned from malls and football games for going after teenage girls instead of voting for a Democrat. And it's just, what the heck? (laughs) But many Republicans feel differently, and they don't believe what's been reported on Roy Moore. Here's J.W. Poor a 77-year-old Republican, a retired home builder from Corner, Alabama. So why are you going to vote for Roy Moore on Tuesday? Well, I don't believe the word they say about him. but that, that's Well, that's because Democrats 
been against us all the way. They don't accept the president. They don't accept nobody. Is he a good man? I think he is. So poor sentiment there reflects the feeling that some Alabamians seem to share, which is this resentment toward Washington, toward the media, toward the political elite. Did you hear much of that in your reporting? There was an almost emotional response from some people about how much they cannot stand the political establishment, and not just in Alabama, but nationally. And you detect this anger, even among people who aren't personally angry, and anger towards the global economy, that the global economy, in their view, has destroyed their life. They don't feel like they have savings. They feel like their kids don't have opportunity. And in that, they have this grievance toward Washington. It's toward the political elites in both parties. And that's why even if they don't like Roy Moore, they saw Roy Moore as a way to bludgeon the political establishment that they believed has failed them. And Jug Jones tried to say, I understand your unhappiness with the global economy. I understand your anti-establishment fervor. But this election is also about issues of character. Uh, and you got to make a decision on that, not just try to send a signal to Washington. So, for example, I spoke with Billy Hopper, who is a 73-year-old Republican. And she told me about how she was standing with Roy Moore as a way to push back against Democrats and the media in Washington. It means a lot when it comes to the uh, Supreme Court justices. And see, it's shown that everybody, I mean, all the Democrats up in Washington want to vote against the president and anything he has to say. So So you're supporting more in part to help President Trump? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Do you think Alabama's gotten an unfair rap from some of the media? Oh, yeah. How yeah. so? I just think that they... Uh, say we're backwards. There was some uh, uh, ad come out today saying that we were uh, white supremacist haters and things like that. And I don't hate anyone. I love them all. So, In your reporting from Alabama, you've also touched on the ways that Alabamians feel the rest of the country may perceive them and their state and their values. What did you learn from voters regarding that? Oh, I learned a lot. <laughs> and, I, and I heard names that you don't hear in national politics. I heard George Wallace come up from from Doug Jones, and he's the former governor. He was a segregationist, famous for saying segregation now, segregation forever in the early 1960s. And Alabama was defined by people like George Wallace and Birmingham public official Bull Connor, who's infamous for turning the fire hoses on civil rights activists with the dogs. I mean, we all know those scenes. We all learned about them uh, in high school growing up and in college. And Alabama was known as a place of, at times in the 60s, as terror, as racial terror, uh, Ku Klux Klan, public officials who were segregationists. And that's not that long ago. That's just about 50 years ago. And that history haunts Alabama. As much as they have the aerospace industry in Huntsville and automobile companies like Toyota trying to come into Alabama, people there, especially those who are older, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, they know that Alabama's past is right there every day, a cloud over them in some ways. They, they've come so far, but they still have candidates like Roy Moore, who was anti-Muslim, who has said things that are anti-gay rights, anti-transgender rights. And so they're always reconciling uh, their past with their future. And, and some of these voters, uh, they do feel this kind of shame. But it's not only shame, it's, a, it's this almost a cringing they feel like they've come a long way, uh, but they're not sure the country sees them 
as coming a long way. And I spoke about this topic with Zach Parrish. He's a 20-year-old Democrat. Um, within the past three years, I've been just traveling either with school or on my own. I've been to Chicago, New York, even London about two years ago. And every time when someone asks me, hey, where are you from? I kind of, I get this lump in my throat, to be honest, before I say I'm from Alabama because I know I've heard countless times just what people kind of associate with Alabama. You're either kind of not politically sound or you're some huge football fanatic. I remember when I was in, um, when I was in New York, I remember telling one person, hey, I'm from Alabama. They gave me like the most disgusted look. One of those, like, I can't believe you're from there. Why'd you have to tell me that? Like, you could have lied kind of look. So, honestly, yeah, kind of reputation in terms of saying, hey, I'm from Alabama does kind of matter because it's more of a thing of people hear that and they kind of already have a mindset of, oh, I can kind of guess what this person's like. And here's J.W. Poor again telling me he he doesn't really care much uh, about the judgment of others from the outside. Are you sick of people judging Alabama from the outside? Yes. Why is that? Because they don't have no right to judge us. That's it. One other question that I'm personally stuck on is whether the moral character of our elected officials matters to voters and even how voters interpret moral character. I think here we have somewhat of a battle of religiosity. Where do Alabamians stand on this? They see themselves as righteous. Many, most, almost all voters I spoke to are religious voters down in Alabama. But this question of does moral character matter, it came up again and again. But I was struck by this, is that so many of them just do not believe the media. And this is a real issue in our country. When I go down to Alabama and I say, Robert Costa, The Washington Post, some people immediately say, oh, great to meet you. Welcome to Alabama. And some Mm -hmm. people say, I will never speak to you in my life. And it's immediate hostility. And it's a little, it takes you back because you haven't said anything except hello. And there's that kind of visceral response from people and anger. And and it's important to note that I think because when we wonder why do things happen, it's because so many people who I encountered down there and elsewhere around the country, for a lot of reasons, they just do not want to hear from the mainstream media. Uh, and it's disheartening at times to be in, to encounter that, especially when you believe the reporting speaks for itself. But we live in a very frenzied national political climate that is, is apparent in Alabama. Let's go back to Leslie Golden, one of the Democrats we heard from earlier, and she weighs in on all of this. I think that they should put the interests of the country and the people they serve before their own interests. Uh, That's probably naive. But if you say that you are going to be a political leader, then you should be looking for political issues that have the country actually progress rather than asking for people to back the worst of their opinions. You should be really a leader who's taking people forward, not backward. Ron Pace, retired Army, Birmingham Democrat, met him at Fife's Restaurant in Birmingham. Well, good question. Um, I ran across a scripture that kind of defines what we're dealing with in our politicians. And it says that they're caught between the world and, and their God. And so they're unstable in all their ways. 
Um, we've got a number of politicians who say that they're Christian, but then they get in office and they they uh, they go strictly for what's what the power base says. So it's a dichotomy where we are in our country. And it's just not Alabama. You can't just pin this on Alabama. Maybe the spotlight may be on us right now, but it goes on in Georgia, um, South Carolina, Louisiana, Mississippi. You know, most of the Southern coalition. That's that's how they vote. reporting, how much does Alabama reflect the divisiveness we're seeing in the rest of the country? Alabama is a microcosm of what we're seeing nationally. And President Trump injecting himself into the race only made that more apparent because the the president has made combative politics uh, central to his presidency. And it's defined the Republican Party. It's defined how the Democrats respond. It's defined our whole time. And in Alabama, it's just another front in this national battle Uh, This national political war that we seem to be covering day in, day out. And in Alabama, you felt it, that this was a front not just for Alabama's identity and Alabama's future and what Alabama was going to be seen like to the country, but it was about who was going to claim credit in this broader civil war in the country uh, over politics. Do you think we'll see more people sort of diverting from voting along partisan lines? So you saw Jeff Flake donated some money to the Doug Jones campaign, Republican retiring um, do you think we'll see more of that or do you think we're headed just towards this direction of total party loyalty? No, I, I think you're, that's a, it's an important point to note that this is not just Republican versus Democrat. Everything has been scrambled. President Trump, because of the way he ruptured the Republican Party, he took him in a different direction on trade, on economic issues that they never really went. Uh, he's, he's anti-free trade in some respects. Uh, he, he speaks to the working class in an economic l- language that we never really heard from most Republicans. Democrats have started to, to react to this and, and, and make their own pitches that are a little more anti-free trade. We see that in different states across the country. And so voters now are not choosing between two easily defined parties. Uh, even in Alabama, it was not about the issues. It was about the issues of personality and character and morals. And to your knowledge, is this sort of the first time in history we've seen it get quite this complicated? Well, at least in modern history. I mean, in the post-war era, uh, we, we've generally fallen along certain lines. Uh, but I think what this is really a change is since Ronald Reagan was president and since he left office in 1989, he had a Republican Party that was pro-business, low taxes, hawkish foreign policy, uh, conservative in, in, in its values uh, morally. And now you have a Republican Party that's not really as hawkish on foreign policy, that's not as uh, conservative on, ec- on economic policy or on trade policy. And on the questions of, of character, it's really more driven by Trump and in his own style and experience. And so it's a a party that's Republican in name, but it's really going through its own upheavals uh, with all this nationalism and populism and Breitbart and Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. You mix that all together and you get a whole different political stew. And that's made some Democrats say, I like the Republican Party in that respect because it seems more oriented toward the working class. And that's why it was surprising for a lot of people in 2016 to see voters actually vote for the Republicans in the Midwest, uh, because they said, this is actually not my father's Republican Party. This is the Donald Trump Republican Party. I could vote for that. Democrats are saying, we're not the same old Democratic Party either. Look at Doug Jones. Uh, We're making pitches to voters in the Deep South. We're not just the Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama coalition. 
uh, we are a party that's also adjusting to the this grievance that's around the country. Okay, that brings us to our final question, which I think really gets to the heart of this. What does Doug Jones's win mean for President Trump? It means that President Trump is going to have fewer Republican senators to get his agenda through, and it's going to make it very difficult for him to have a productive 2018 on Capitol Hill. It also means that his base is more fragile than he may have hoped, that if he was hoping to be seen as the closer, the winner in a state that was totally safe for him in 2016, it went way over the line for President Trump. Now he couldn't bring someone controversial, yes, but he couldn't bring a candidate over to victory in Roy Moore. And this this raises questions about his his own stature inside of the Republican Party. And Republicans are going to wonder, he backed a candidate that lost us a seat in the Senate. And is he politically toxic? If you're running in a place like Arizona next year or in Pennsylvania or in Florida, do you want President Trump at your side? Uh, And that's a choice they're all going to have to make. And that's not helpful to the White House. But that's not to say that President Trump can't recover. This may make Washington a little bit more willing to broker deals because the Senate's so narrow. You're going to have to cut deals to get anything done. So I don't like to read too much into it, uh, but it's certainly a a blow for President Trump. He he was looking for a win here. He's always looking for a win. And this was a a sudden and uh, at least for the moment debilitating defeat. All right, Robert, thank you so much for your reporting from Alabama and so much for coming on the show. Thank you. You guys can follow Robert Costa on Twitter at Costa Reports. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Thank you guys so much for listening to this, our 50th episode of Can He Do That? As I mentioned before, I will be leaving you guys for a short time to go on maternity leave, but we'll return sometime next year with more Can He Do That? episodes for you guys to listen to. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly wonderful Carol Alderman with extra help this week from Anne Lee, design direction from Kat Rudell-Brooks, and logo art from Loren Boglio. Hello, I'm Dan Lamoth, a national security writer here at The Washington Post. I'm the host of our newest podcast, Letters from War. It's the story of a family of brothers fighting in World War II. It is told mostly through the hundreds of letters that they wrote to each other. The letters detail everything from the Great Depression to their favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, to the horrors of combat that they themselves saw. In this podcast, modern-day veterans will read the parts of the brothers, and at times, they will relate their own experiences to what they're reading. Check it out on WashingtonPost.com slash Letters From War. The Washington 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 Post. Post.